a name for you ladies, but it isn't used in high society. Outside of a kennel. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. I am your host, Anders Holmes, in the land of Denmark. And across the Atlantic Ocean, over the Atlantic Wall, I am joined by my brother, Adam Holmes, over Zoom. Say hello ah. to the listeners, Adam. Hello, what do you hear? What do you say, boys? We're going to talk about the 1930s, eh? Um... There's no business like show business like. Um, hello. Uh, yeah, the name. Yeah, I'm not going to be doing that for the whole episode. Interesting reference to the Atlantic Wall. Um, yeah, the Atlantic Wall. Yeah, very 1940s uh, reference there. But we're in the 1930s. Um, well, fascism was kind of on the rise at this time. So yeah. fascism, yeah, good. Fascism was on its way. Um, did you say go fascism? No, I did not say go fascism. Um, <laughs> it sounded like go fascism for a second. No, that would not be very on brand, would it? Um, no, fascism was 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 uh, well. It's not on its way. It's happening. Um, but we, why are we talking about fascism right away? Um, we should be yeah, talking just... about Hollywood. Um, Hollywood. Da, 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 I mean, this da, da, is the golden era of Hollywood right here. This is like this is peak fucking Hollywood right now, isn't it? Because you've got your uh, you had your twenties and the silent movies and the growth of the industry to a multi-million billion dollar thing and then in the 30s it's like studio the studio system is entrenched and you've got um, your talkies you've got your talkies and you're well and this is an interesting era because you've got some films that have trouble adjusting to sound and then others that do it really well but that is the big story of the 1930s is that you know this is really when sound is uh is here and here to stay um good films Lots of good films. And and certain genres of film were pretty popular. And, you know, westerns were pretty popular. Musicals were pretty popular. Swashbuckling. Why say that about westerns? They did have a, they had a tricky decade, westerns. They were very much rescued in the last year of the, the 1930s uh, by John Ford. Well, we'll talk about that. But um, yeah, musicals. musicals. Musicals were very, very popular. Um, Universal horror we, films as well. I love those. We talked about those on our last episode. We've got some some good gangster films in the 1930s. Lots. You know what? The one genre though that I really associate with the 1930s, apart from musicals, is screwball comedies, because you yes. don't see those films any time after the 30s. It's like film noir in the 1940s. Screwball comedy it blossoms into this thing and then it goes away, and it's really there in the 1930s as a major genre and it's a completely unique uh genre that i feel like is completely just sort of rooted in the 30s and very much rooted in some of the people who are involved like um the directors uh you know you've got your um preston sturgis leo mccray leo mccary 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 yeah you've got and then you've got your actors like um uh rosalind russell Catherine hepburn harry grant um so well, yeah, Cary I mean, Grant, he's like the pinnacle screwball comedy actor. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed to name someone more, yeah, iconically screw. I mean, I'd say Catherine Hepburn, give him a good run for his money. But yeah, I mean, it's um, which she did, you know, in those movies. But um, well, we can talk about that too because I think I'll be bringing that up. Um, but um, yeah, it was, so also, just the, it was also the decade of the Hayes Code as well. Yes. Some ways. the code came in we talked about that on our last episode and um it was sort of enforced loosely and then became more um uh stringently enforced um some political films in hollywood but not a lot um uh mostly you know uh it was relatively escapist fair but you have got some um some 
films that stand out because this is the other thing that's going on in the 1930s is it's the Great Depression, which started in 1929, but very much continues all the way through to the start of the Second World War. Um, and so that's very much in the American background. But then in Europe, as you mentioned, you've got the rise of fascism, you've got uh, crumbling empires, you've got... Um, uh, you know, really great directors working. Um, half of my films are European and half of them are American. Uh, so, yeah. And of course, Europe's still reckoning with the First World War and looking ahead with dread to the inevitable Second World War. So there's a lot of the, yeah. that background too. But um, this isn't a history podcast. This is a movie podcast. A movie so, podcast. Uh, <laughs> why don't we... I do not want to try the new Bane. Fuck off this fucking pop-up. Um, why don't we launch into our top 10? Yeah, let's do that. Did I go... You went first last time, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I think you should go first. Okay. So at uh, number 10 is a film that came out in 1933. It's uh, directed by Lloyd Bacon, but it did have the... It did have the involvement of Busby Berkeley, and that is 42nd Street. Oh, that's a great film, and it's not on my list, so I'm thrilled that you have it there. Yeah, I watched it recently for uh, uh, the first time, uh, fairly recently. I think uh, I needed it was it was a bit of I had a bit of a bad day, and I needed a bit of cheering up, and this film did do the trick. And it, I mean, it's a charming film. It's an absolutely charming, charming film. I just I, I was so amazed by the choreography at the end of the film i was just yeah. it made me want to watch more films that busby berkeley did and yeah i, I think he did he did, he did he do he a did lot of films like gold, gold I, diggers I, of 1933 is one of my yeah, favorites he and, uh, yeah he did and also footlight parade he did do that one as well I've not seen them, yeah. i haven't seen that um but no but also it's an interesting film about life in the theater it, it felt like all that jazz without the cynicism and death at the end in some ways yeah but it's like a cousin of all that jazz you know it's like a descendant of all that of all that jazz yeah like um, the whole like aspect of like the rehearsal side of things and like you know the whole the director just sort of you know on the verge of like having a nervous breakdown and trying to direct yeah, yeah, yeah. like and I, I i mean i've not like been in that world i've never been in like professional theater but you know i've been in school plays and i had a like the last school play i was in when i was like a teenager uh my uh, our director who was he was doing west side story he was very like very passionate and very sort of like we gotta get i right. saw you in west side story you played the old man i played doc yeah doc <laughs> marty. <laughs> <And I> was... <laughs> marty but no but i was i was present for a lot of like the direction that he was doing and he was you know he was a very like you know he was very sort of like this is this has got to be right we got to do this right and everything like that and it's like you, you, you know this this is you got to mean it you got to feel it and that kind of shit so you know a lot a lot, a lot of that was coming back when, <laughs> a lot of that was coming back during when i was watching 42nd street you know it was it wasn't like you know the it was Fletcher from Whiplash was directing the play. It wasn't anything like that, but you know, no, just... I don't think I don't think they get someone like that to look after the um, Bryanston production of uh, West Side Story. But yeah, no, I mean, I see what you, I see what you mean, and it's um, it is fun the way it brings that stuff out, and I think that's a real feature of musicals in this decade. There's a lot of like, you know, there's two types of musicals. There's musicals where the music and the dance sequences are sort of woven into the plot, but then there are some even in those films where it's like this sequence is so big that it has to feel like it has to be justified by being part of a production or part of a um 
like a dance competition or something because otherwise it just doesn't make sense why this many people are dancing at the same time uh or this kind of a huge setup is happening at the same time so you know i think about um swing time you know at the end where there's that whole sort of medley where you know um unfortunately um fred astaire puts on blackface at one point but like that's um <laughs> which we uh, shouldn't talk about but uh the you know that's kind of like built in as like well this is what's happening it's a product it's a theater production but of course the fact of it the the joke or the the fun kind of sleight of hand is that there is no theater produ theater production in the world that could do what these films are doing and also no theater audience can see the dancers from above which is what berkeley has us do watch them from above so that they weave all these shapes and so on i mean it's just it's 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 almost a little bit surreal and i love that about the the choreography i mean the plots are just always the same it's like they're they're struggling to get the thing done but some people hate each other some people love each other and at the end everyone's fine uh, but there is the I do really like the director character in the city who plays him again. Um, uh, it's not Lionel. It might be Lionel Barrymore. I don't know. No, is it? Uh, no, no it, it, it's it's a Lionel Lionel Barrymore. So Lionel's a very nineteen thirties name. Um, yeah, very good. Lionel. Uh, sorry, let me. Uh, it's great uh... radio. This Jesus Christ. Uh, Warren Warner Baxter, that's the actor. Warner Baxter, ah, yes, that's a, ah. another good nineteen thirties name. Um, but also, it was I. I and also was quite nice seeing Dick Powell in this movie, and also Ginger Rogers yeah. as well, who went off to do all those movies with Fred Astaire, as you mentioned. But it was cool to see Dick Powell in his sort of you know pre Murder My Sweet sort of period. Well, he's all over these films. There's there's, there's um there's some good dick to be found in 1930s musicals. He's uh, he was very much very much the like fresh faced young guy, and then he he re he reinvented himself as a hard as nails uh, detective, and and uh, he became a director as well. Oh yeah, the Emily uh, uh, no, he didn't. The enemy the below. Emily? The enemy below, not the Emily below. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I meant enemy below. Didn't he also direct the? Uh, he no, yeah, he did direct the John Wayne Genghis Khan movie, didn't he? Oh, the one where everyone got cancer. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not a 1930s one. Okay, so my Maybe number where 10, everyone died. My number 10 is Bringing Up Baby, which is Ooh, a, such a good film. fantastic film. Uh, hilarious. Um, genuinely. Um, so, so funny and so delightful. Um, it is the ultimate kind of um, uh, acting pairing alchemy of um Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant that I mentioned earlier that just makes for this complete kind of live wire um uh caper where you know she plays this uh rich donor and he's a sort of hapless scientist and 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 she draws him into this madcap adventure involving her pet leopard which I'm sure was an inspiration in part for the hangover movie and that, um, that scene when he walks into the bathroom for the first yeah. time and sees it that is that is that is pure hangover. I can I can oh, imagine. Yeah, no, it's it's, Todd Phillips it's took that entirely, in that yeah. Film. yeah, that is a complete like inspiration. But the, the bit, the whole sequence in the garden at her house, where he then there's the bit where he's wearing his robe and you know wearing the and and the he, whole police the, station the, thing. The yeah the 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 there's so much just like great the, the bit where they tear each other's clothes off by accident at the party and like. You know, just so many fantastic setups, and um, and it is just bang, bang, bang. You know, joke, joke, joke. Yeah. Um, it is so relentless. Um, some of the humor is a bit dated, but most of it is still super fresh feeling. Charming and um, as hell. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. also, it's just the, the 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 levels of sophistication on display from Hepburn and Grant. You know, but I mean, she was a, sort of a blue blood, but he he was a hard scrabble um, guy who you know came up through you know Bristolian vaudeville essentially. Like he, you know he 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 made it there the tough way, but he developed that kind of Cary Grant sophistication that we associated with sort of over the years and um yeah you know, he is so comfortable in his own skin in this movie it is wonderful to see um and he's not quite as like goofy as he is in um some other movies that like, he reigns it in a little bit and he lets Hepburn get a lot of the best kind of like goofy like physical comedy bits which is yeah. really great I mean there's so much like generosity and sort of sharing of of the of the load that goes on between these two in that film am I wrong in Am I right in thinking that, or right? I'm, I'm right. I'm either right or wrong about this. Well, yeah, you're either right or wrong. Well, fuck, well, what are you going to ask? But was this Catherine Hepburn's big break? Sort of. It was a bit. It was actually kind of a. These films were a bit of a comeback for her because in the earlier part of the 30s, she had been on this list that um, one of those poison pen list. Uh, one of those poison pen magazines had labeled her and a bunch of other actors and actresses box office poison um but she proved them wrong and you know she kept being in uh successful films throughout the late 30s 40s 50s 60s and indeed the 70s so you know um uh she is she, her you know her sort of yeah she broke through that kind of prejudice that that she was under um and and never looked back um and you know the 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 40s begins with um you know for her and grant with with uh, the philadelphia story you know which is sort of building on on this film in part but you know there's there's such a successful uh duo and that you know they both continue to keep going and i think you know grant retires in the early 60s but you know he's acting throughout the 50s and 40s um as well so there's just like a real you know you watch this and you're like i can see why these two continued uh to be so beloved by audiences but this is a particular kind of movie as i mentioned before you know they try there's some attempts to try and like revive screwball comedy at various times i think mel brooks in some ways yeah. does screwball comedy but it's not quite the same it's not it's not the same as it was in the in the 30s um the closest baby is is just fucking wonderful and delightful and as you say like Talk about a, a good movie to cheer you up on a tough day. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like the closest that, I mean, it, I have, Peter Bogdanovich, I think, was like the closest that tried to like replicate that screwball comedy style. If you've seen like What's Up Doc with uh, Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand, that is like a love letter to screwball comedy. If you've seen that, Except Ryan O'Neill has got the same amount of charisma as a fucking aubergine like he's not yeah he's not exactly charismatic barbara streisand really carries that <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. and, and madeline <laughs> can i will say madeline khan as well who is i feel one of the most the one of the funniest comedians of all time i thought i think she's oh, she's fantastic. terrific yeah she's brilliant but anyway, yeah right ryan, ryan not a 1930s actor not a 1930s and also like i feel and then he did another film noises off which is based on a play with that came out in the 90s with Michael Caine and that has like a kind of like screwball comedy-esque feel like play within a play in the backstage you know, so have you heard of that film? Yeah I mean that was based on a, on a theatrical performance I mean I think you could probably argue that screwball comedy continues in the theatre to some extent but yeah it's all about fast talking the comedy is very verbal despite all the pratfalls um, 
and um and i feel like bringing up baby just nails it on every level yeah. what's your number nine uh my number nine uh, my number mine uh, my number nine is named after one of my favorite songs by the beastie boys sabotage by alfred hitchcock Oh, that's a great film. Uh, I didn't realize that he named the film after the Beastie Boys song, which came out 50 years later. But yeah, um, no, a really good, really good movie. Um, with the That's the one with the iconic bit at the end where the guy's hanging from the Empire State Building. I mean, the, the Statue of Liberty. I think that's a different movie. Is that Saboteur? Yeah, that's Saboteur. Sabotage is the one set in London. Sabotage is the bomb on the bus. The bomb on the bus? The boy with the bomb on the bus? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, the 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 terrorist who runs a movie theater and he's he a boy takes a bomb on on, on a bus or something. <laughs> he's, he yeah, thinks the boy goes on the bus and the bomb blows up. Yeah, he thinks he's he thinks he's carrying like reels of film and then the bus driver's like, oh, you can't bring them on here. They'll like, explode or something like that. Yeah. Boy, bomb, bus, bang. It's 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 absolute suspense. Like you know, it's like he you said, know, you know what he always said. Hitchcock always said he'd made a mistake blowing up the boy, the bus, and the bomb because he was like, the whole point of the suspense is that you're supposed to get rescued at the last minute. But I think it's great that he blows up the boy on the bus and the bomb. Yeah, it sort of adds like a little bit of tension and stakes to the film. Like anybody could like die. Yeah. And also uh, it, it makes the bad guy seem even worse than, you know, it, it just makes it makes you want to like hope that he gets caught, which, you know... You know, it's like if you look at a lot of like 1930s gangster films, you know, it didn't have a lot of like bad guys winning. You know, all the bad guys get their comeuppance at the end. You know, Little Caesar, Angels with Dirty Faces, The Public Enemy, like all those guys, you know, they all got what they deserved, basically. Yeah, you're going to get put away, boy. Uh, yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's a better film than Saboteur. I always get them mixed up. Um, I haven't seen Saboteur yet. Oh, it's good. It's fun. Uh, 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 he said Dominic Cummings. Uh, Robert Cummings uh, is is in it. Um, and um, yeah, it's like classic, just like good early American era Hitchcock, like nothing too special. But it has got that great sequence with the Statue of Liberty. Um, yeah, but this is Hitchcock in Britain. I've got a Hitchcock on my list as well. Uh, this is such a rich period for Alfred Hitchcock. You've got your... Uh, you got your 39 steps and some of the other films that we might talk about later. But then there's also stuff like I really like Secret Agent with um, Peter Lorre and John Gielgud. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. I do remember we had it on D I do remember I have it. You have it on yeah. DVD, but I haven't actually I, I think you could probably it. find it pretty easily. It's a really fun movie. Um but yeah, yeah, Saboteur is I love the way he makes use of London in these films. Um it echoes some of the stuff he did in the twenties, like the lodger. Have you seen that? No, it is on the Criterion Channel, and I would like to check yeah. it out because there's the not a lot, there's a lot of early Hitchcock that I haven't watched. I've 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 seen more of his fifties, some of his forties movies, and everything else he did after that. Not yeah, so I mean, much. it's fair to say the man's got quite the back catalogue. Um, yeah, but yeah, thirties. He is he's still directing in Britain in the thirties. He gets um, he goes to America, and I think the first time he does in America is Rebecca. It might be Rebecca, but anyway, he goes to America. Yeah. yeah, so Rebecca, yeah. Um, and um, but yeah, the British films I think are full of the stuff that kind of makes Hitchcock um, what he really is because it's the it's the humor, a, yeah, the humor exactly. And I feel like the humor has a particular sort of British lilt to it that you it gets diluted by the fact that his subsequent films are set in America. But I think that that humor is very kind of Londony. Yeah. Like I think that there is just such um, 
there is such fun to be had in this uh, in this film, despite the fact that it's incredibly, you know, the subject matter is so serious. But, you know, the way he sort of has this kind of gallery of different characters and, you know, they're all kind of, some of them are hapless, some of them are goofy. And then they're just like here and there, just like a psychopath. <laughs> it's just, uh, I just, uh, yeah, I just love it. It's a great world. Um, yeah, Hitchcock. Well, if we're going to talk about him later, then let's park him for now. Yeah. Um, my number nine is... Uh, another musical it's uh top hat with um fred astaire i mean look i could have picked any film i could have picked swing time yeah. i could have picked shall we dance but i wanted to pick top hat because it has the um first of all the top hat white tie and tail sequence which i love it also has the dancing cheek to cheek right um yes that is that one yeah, I that's thought, good. I yeah thought... i'm glad i think that's the whole, I, with the ostrich feathers i thought it was the gay divorcee but it's top hat right um that has the that wonderful bit with her dress, which keeps shedding ostrich feathers, which was driving him crazy. I mean, you know, Fred Astaire is uh, someone who'd been working for a very long time when he became a star. He had had this uh, very famous partnership with his sister, um, a Ada Astaire. Oh God, Adele. Shit, what's his name? Uh, I have no idea. I'm. I can, I can look it up. Turning. No, I'll look it up. Fred Astaire. This is great radio. Sister. Name. <laughs> Adele, <laughs> Adele is there. Uh, so he loves this. It's me. Shut up. Um, the um, he danced with his sister in the, the early in the twenties. Then he had this famous screen test where they didn't think he was up to much. The notes from the screen test were that he can't sing, he can't dance, uh, he can't sing, he can't act, but he can dance a little. Um, <laughs> But he, in the 1930s, he and Ginger Rogers formed this partnership. Both of, you know, she was, as you mentioned, a kind of supporting player in, in early 30s musicals. Um, they did a movie called Flying Down to Rio where they weren't the leads. They were more the supporting characters. And if you've watched, I have Flying Down to Rio on DVD. When you watch that film, you kind of coming away feeling, I didn't really care so much about the leads. I cared more about them. And I feel like the people who were making the movies felt those two guys are good let's do films with them and that's what yeah, happened. let's fucking ditch everything else let's do exactly um yeah. and and top hats really that's that's what it's all about and i love how so often in the films like they start off as as kind of antagonists and then they become in love with each other just through dancing and getting into different situations and i i just they are so comfortingly formulaic but the dance sequences are incredible i mean Esther. As you say, you know, he caught the eye with her. They became this great partnership. But he was always, I mean, he was always a little bit mean about her. I mean, she had that great line where she was like, you know, I I had to do everything that Fred Astaire did except backwards and in heels. <laughs> you know, it's like, it is very much a partnership. It is not just Fred Astaire. And I think maybe he wanted it to be remembered differently. He also liked a bit of a... Uh, bit of a douchey comment at one point where he said that his favorite dance partner was Rita Hayworth, which is not to say that Rita Hayworth wasn't a good dancer. She was, but like... Fucking his best movies he made with, like, no question that the large, the, the vast majority of his best movies he made with Ginger. It's Fred and Ginger for fuck's sake. I mean, that's the that's the pairing. No one remembers. Well, you, of course, you remember Centuries. Of course, you remember Rita Hayworth. But the partnership is Fred and Ginger. Yeah, so, I haven't seen any top. of the other the collaborations he did with Rita Hayworth, but I've seen. I mean, I've only seen one. It was fine. I've seen mo. I have most of. I have all of their collaborations on DVD. The only one I have. Stop, stop fucking bragging about what you've got on DVD. Why do you do this every time a film? Like, oh, I have that on DVD. It's like you own every DVD. We get it. You're a physical <laughs> media hound. Yeah, I've only. I haven't seen one of their collaborations, which is the only 
film of theirs that's in color. You don't have on DVD? No, I have it on DVD. I just haven't seen it. <laughs> but no, um, Top Hat yeah. is great. Cheek to Cheek is a great song. And the, yeah, the title track and everything else. And then, then, then there's the bit at the end where they go to Venice and it's like this total fucking schlocky Hollywoodization of Venice. This like set that just looks like like the Venice area of Disneyland. It's so perfect. I, I mean, this is the thing. When you watch Hollywood movies, the artifice is part of the fun, I think, a lot of the time. Anyway, yeah, you're number sense. eight, sir. Let's hear it. Yeah, my... Uh... Yeah, number eight. It's... What a fucking seamless transition that was. <laughs> Wake <laughs> up! <laughs> my number eight is a film of gods and monsters. Uh, uh, I'll say that again. It's a film of gods <laughs> and monsters. The gods Bride monsters? of Frankenstein. Oh yes, but we talked about this on our on our uh, horror episode. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's an absolutely. It's a, it also it's like it's a great sequel. It it improves so much on the first movie. It is one of the rare examples of a sequel being better than the original. Frankenstein, the first one, has its moments. It's a classic horror film, no doubt about it. But this one, by adding more humor, by adding more heart, I think. Um, takes it to the next level and it gives us one of the most iconic images of 30s horror which is the bride which is um elsa lanchester who um oh she's just she doesn't get a lot to do in this film but she you you really are left uh what is it at the end is this the children of the night well no that's dracula right fuck dracula's children of the night listen children of the night what does he say at the end to her she hates me. Oh yeah, but apart okay, maybe. There's there's not like a line where he's like, Oh no, I'm thinking of like Jaws and his girlfriend at the end of Moonraker. I'm like <laughs> I've got mixed well, up because it's to us. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't there isn't anything like that. They're no, just, in this they, one he's like, We belong dead. That's the line. That's the line. I was like, that's the man. That's the one I was remembering. We belong dead. Yeah, yeah. That's a great line. I love that line. Yeah, sorry, I was trying to remember that. Okay, but, so he, we no, but, but it's in on this a long one journey where... by a moonraker to get to that. <laughs> but also, like the the monster Frankenstein monster goes on a bit of a journey. You know, he becomes like you know everyone yeah, he goes to meet Gene Hackman in the woods. Which, by the way, in in Young Frankenstein, that which if you haven't seen it, listeners, very funny film. If you go, if that sequence is such a good piss take of this of this. Film. But it was a very sweet moment in this one where he meets that blind old man in the forest and he's like, friend, and they kind of... Good friend. But I, I, I saw online someone kind of made it seem like it, it, like they were sort of comparing it to like a gay relationship and then the then the people with pitchforks come in and then ruin it for everybody and then then, then they have then it just breaks up that little... Oh, because it's the same... Oh, interesting. I mean... Yeah. Um... Because, like, I mean, we did say on the pre-code episode before, James Whale, he was very openly homosexual in a time where not a lot of people were. And he, I feel like he was, I feel like that aspect kind of is felt through his films, that kind of camp, campness. Definitely. I think, I think he's, he's very deliberately um, camping it up in this and other movies that he did. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think that that's, um, you know should be remembered and also um explains a lot because it's not i just think it's it's tempting to look at this film and be like ha 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 the 1930s are so goofy like it's so bad it's good kind of thing it's like no 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 this is all being done knowingly and deliberately um and um and and i think it 
it's a really it's not it might not be what you think when you go into it like you think maybe this is gonna be like creepy and there, there are moments where it's creepy but really this is a comedy yeah and also like boris karloff gets quite a bit more to do as the monster like yeah when he gets lines yeah i know it's like the whole like the, the scene one. where he tries to like sort of be intimate with the monster like like the the bride who's like <laughs> like that thing and then she's like <laughs> like that i just think that that's... there's a lot of good like noises as well yeah, yeah he's a lot of noise acting in this yeah. film no it's it's a it's a really it's a really good film i also feel like it it like because in a lot of like those early 30s films where sound was kind of coming in you had like music in the beginning with the titles but you didn't have music that played in like like a soundtrack that was playing over certain scenes you didn't have like a someone composing music or like sometimes there'd be like diegetic music like in scenes but you didn't have like something you know you know like jaws you didn't you, like james john williams's music playing in through certain scenes yeah i feel like that's something that that really comes in in the late 30s the sort of yeah like mid to late scores. 30s you had scores that kind of came in and i feel like the score i don't really thought about this helps kind of you know, it, it it elevates the movie, the this film in particular, very well. Because I feel like every time when I watch Dracula, the, there's the music in the beginning, which is the um, Tchaikovsky music from Black Swan, I think, or Swan Lake. Swan Lake, right? <laughs> Both. But yeah, yeah. Swan Lake. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then there's no music throughout the rest of the film. And I always felt the movie like it needed a bit of music to keep because i always feel like when i yeah, watch you need when someone sneaks into a dark room you need dun, 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 dun music you can't just have it happen in silence yeah i know because i always feel like it's like it, i always feel i mean i like dracula but i always feel a bit like come on oh, man dracula when i was watching that i was like there are so many things I want to do to this film to make it better. Like it, comparing it to Nosferatu, you know, like Nosferatu is so much more atmospheric. Um, anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Bride of Frankenstein. I think we spent enough time on this because we did do the um, horror episode. So go back and listen to that for more horror nonsense. Uh, number eight for me is a Howard Hawks movie called Only Angels Have Wings, which actually I suddenly realized that's the second Howard Hawks movie I've got on this because he directed Bringing Up Baby as well. But Only Angels Have Wings is an adventure movie involving um, pilots delivering mail in the South American uh, mountains. So very perilous um, mail delivery missions. And it features once again, Cary Grant uh, and um, Gene Arthur uh, and Thomas Mitchell. Thomas Mitchell, who had this incredible decade where he was in all the movies in 1939 his agent must have been like working his you know his sweet talking whatever skills to the bone because um that man was in all all the movies in 1939 but this uh he's he's really good in this rita hayworth is in it as well um richard bartlemus um just a like classic howard hawks movie like a, a sort of um a lot of wisecracking like macho banter some mm. real great scenes of uh, suspense and and sort of, uh, of tragedy know, as well some tragedy some toxic masculinity and like a good strong female lead um who uh, you know i think was very influenced by slim hawks uh, howard hawks wife at the time uh, who was the one who discovered um lauren mccall um Ooh. yeah no uh, only angels of wings is um is tremendous and the, the the great thing about it is there's not that much um like location shoot, shooting a lot of it really is just done in the studio and again the artifice is part of the fun like you you learn to sort of love the models and the planes and the 
um the mountain sets and so on and then at one point they do throw in this like virtuoso um like desert based flying scene which i think is really really cool um and um scene with the birds as well attacking the planes or like the, they then... attack the plane the plane flies into them what the fuck is this <laughs> some, some anti-bird propagandist the plane crashes into the birds the birds are doing some kamikaze attack on thomas mitchell spoiler alert sorry like this is they're just there because it's the the mountains i, mean, I remember like in the film they fall like bombs on the plane or something like that i don't know they don't they bomb the birds you are anti-bird you're fake newsing the birds they drop bombs on the birds to scare the birds away so they won't fly into the plane so they fuck it up and the bird flies into the plane but it's not the bird's fault it's a bird i'm remembering that Big film bird. <laughs> i'm remembering scenes from that film very wrong you are you have you have anti-bird prejudice you need to work on it Yes. This is this is disturbing. You're like, oh yeah, it's the birds' fault. They had it coming. No, the birds <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> anyway, so the bird flies into the um the bird flies into the plane. Um and uh, there are bad consequences. But um I think Harry Grant's really good in this. I think this is one of the first uh of his performances where he gets to be the like straight talking uh hero type and he's quite sort of brutal in this film and I think it um Yeah, he's not he so capable of Huh? He's not so romantic in this. No, despite being a sort of love object for two women and arguably several men as well. Um, but he, um, I think you see echoes of, or the or sort of uh, his character in Notorious has echoes of his character in this film. So there's there's like, there's definite, like, you see the potential in Cary Grant here. Um, but just, you know, it's just a really good adventure yarn. Like, I just absolutely love it. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, this is tremendous and um it uh i think it's pretty easy to get hold of to watch it where you can you can get um, it on the uh it's part of the criterion collection on blu-ray the criterion collection yep and um yeah i feel like the 1930s there was a lot of there were a lot of adventure films like big epic adventure films like lost yeah, horizon Ganga Din, stuff like that yeah. yeah lost horizon frank capra's film uh mutiny on the bounty with charles lawton and clark gable which is also really good not on my top 10. Didn't quite make the top 10, but still very good. Well, speaking of your top 10, what's it, your number seven? Uh, my number seven is a delightful Charlie Chaplin film, City Lights. I've not seen that film. It is... Um, it's it's really, really fun. Like, it's... Um, it, he plays... You know, of course he plays... It's another, it's another film where he plays the tramp, his delightful, you know, favourite character, the tramp, where he falls in love with this flower girl who's blind and there's many moments throughout the film where this drunk guy thinks that he's just he's he's a rich dude and every time the drunk guy becomes sober he's just like ah fuck off that kind of thing and there's a lot of great moments there's a boxing scene which is completely memorable and it's just it's charlie chaplin's like great physical comedy and the way that he it's the photography that, that whole that whole sequence the way it's shot it's just it's absolutely funny. It was my first Charlie Chaplin film I've I've seen, and I really want to watch more of his films. I've seen the kid. You haven't seen like Modern Times, or uh, I haven't seen Modern Times. Different. I haven't seen The Great Dictator. Um, I've seen the. Well, I haven't uh, seen this. I mean, it's not. Like, I, I've seen. Not seen the kid. I've seen the kid. Yeah. Okay. Right. I've seen the kid. That was a that was a brilliant film. Um, I did see the Richard Attenborough film where Robert Downey Jr. plays Charlie Chaplin, and that was that was pretty good. 
Yeah, I mean, he's um, he was a genius, uh, and it's so sad that he got sort of hounded out of Hollywood for being left wing and whatever. But he was, I mean, he was quite fascism. powerful at one point. He had his basically had a whole studio to himself. Um, yeah, he he built himself out of you know out of nothing, and then just you know he he was able to sort of go through. Like, I mean, compared to like a lot of actors who came up in the silent era and were really famous, he was he was one of the few that kind of made it through into like talkies as well. Yeah, although not not entirely. Yeah, um, but yeah. I mean, he was he certainly endured a bit longer. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that he makes movies in the thirties that are essentially silent films, um, but that still do really well. Um, yeah, and even as late as the Great Dictator, you know, there are sequences in that that have no words in them, but just like with the bit where he's dancing with the inflatable globe. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I, I, City Lights has been on my list for a long time. I really want to watch it. Does it have that kind of hint of sadness as well that are in the best uh, Chaplin films? Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of hint of sadness, but there's like there's a happy ending that kind of comes with it. There's happiness, oh, there's cool. sadness, and there's a lot of things. And it's, I mean, I I noticed. I mean, I like I like watching silent films because you really focus on the performances you really focus like what's in the scene i mean you had to because you didn't have any sound or anything and you had music but you really kind of appreciate like the performances a little bit more and how they're moving the story along with their expressions and what's happening and i just think it's it's incredible yeah because i think i think there's something that you forget that this is also the first era i mean this is why i think screwball comedies now that you mention it suddenly making make becoming clear in my brain like why is screwball comedy successful in the 30s because we no one had experienced dialogue on screen before. And so that as a technical innovation was actually very exciting. Um, so, but then, but, but yeah, but you get these, you know, performers like Chapman who are able to emote so successfully in the silent films. Um, it's just I what he does. It's, it's what he does with his smile and his eyes. Like his, the, oh, he's, he just lights up, doesn't he? I mean, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. He's it's, a beautiful, beautiful man. Just what he does facially is, is incredible. And it, um, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about him and more about Buster Keaton uh, next time. But, um, you know, what they can do with those faces is um, really artful. Okay, my number seven is uh, Hede Broom or Port of Shadows, um, which uh, stars uh, Jean Gabin uh, and is a sort of crimey, uh, existential French noir romance um set in Le Havre, I think. Uh, and it's directed by uh Marcel Kane, um, who did just so so many good films, um, you know, uh, including um the old um uh what's it called? Daybreak and um Hotel Hotel du Nord. Hotel du Nord. Um Quite a few of his quite a few of his films are on the Criterion Channel, I believe. The Criterion Channel. Uh, he also directed Children of Paradise. Fuck's sake, uh, that was the one I was looking for. Yeah. Um, so wasn't Children that, of Paradise. Wasn't that made during uh, the Nazi occupation of France? It was. Yes. Um, anyway, that happened in the forties. Now we're in the thirties. Marcel Kane did this really, really cool, like moody, like act French. Um, film set in this like port you know Jean Cabin plays a good deserter he meets a girl there's all these gangsters and other weird characters a really sinister guy played by um the brilliant uh, Michel Simon who played uh, Boudou in uh, Boudou Safe from Drowning he's um very unlikable in this film um but um there's there's just so much to like latch onto uh in terms of um 
uh, like just like all the feelings that that the film pulls on. You know, you get all these supporting characters, some of whom have unhappy ends. Uh, you have a dog. You have this doomed love. You know, there's just so so much. Um, and um, I just uh, it, it's one of those films you just want to hang out in. You know, like it's so. Have yeah. you seen it? No, no, I haven't seen it. No, no, oh, right. But um, I, I get, I get what you mean. I've had that feeling with a lot of films. It's got that atmosphere. You would love this film. I, I, I yeah. think it's a. Uh, it's like if, if only angels have wings is like the sort of hollywood kind of you know hangout movie where everything's kind of fine in the end this is a sort of french analog to that where it's like again it's very much very similar to the howard hawks film in some ways in that you've got a boy and a girl and then a supporting cast and the and the cast really kind of make the film the ensemble really makes the film but um this film has a darkness in it that that Hawks' film doesn't have um and a kind of sense of like what the fuck are we doing here kind of meaning of life stuff that also again is not something hollywood bothers with that much but um i mean it's a it's generally regarded as one of the best french films of the 30s but i think it gets crowded out by some of the more famous ones that i think we're both going to talk about um but yeah jean gabin it has never been better i think than in this film uh and um yeah just um watch it it's fantastic is jean gabin gonna show up a little bit later in your list, or no? He, I think, I think he is. And when I say he, he's never been better, I suddenly realised that I think he has been better because I've got two more films of his on here. So yeah, <laughs> yeah um, he did. He did show up a lot in the in these kind of films. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, he was he was the French movie star of the 1930s, and and there's a reason why. I mean, this is one of the coolest men ever to grace the screen. He's like some amazing combination of like uh, Laurence Olivier and Robert Mitchum or something. Like he's just incredible. He does have that quality, yeah. Now, now that you mention it, yeah. It's he's like- so he's so like he's got the sort of um, he's such a like every man, you know. There's uh, yeah. there's, but he's got such intelligence, uh, and and he's just like oh, so cool. Anyway, what's at your number six? So my number six is another horror film, and it's Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Oh, Jekyll again. Can't we just say Jekyll? <laughs> okay, fine. I'll say Jekyll just to make everyone happy. Yeah. So you uh, like this film so much that you put it in the top ten. I have to see this. I really enjoyed it. I I think it's I it's definitely one of the best pre-code horror films that I've seen. And I think it 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 benefits a lot from the special effects makeup and the transformation sequence, like we like we talked about in the pre-code episode. I'll explain it again for those who haven't heard it so the whole transformation sequence is done entirely in one shot and what they did is they put pretty much they put different layers of makeup on Friedrich March's Frederick March's face and he won the Oscar for this film for best actor just uh FYI and so, so in the scene that we know, if you, if you know the Robert Lewis and Stevenson story, you know, Dr. G called Jekyll, whatever, drinks a potion, he turns into Mr. Hyde. Spoiler alert, they're the same people. It's, yeah. It's the Fight Club twist, you know, many years before Fight Club was even. Oh my like, God, you're just spoiling everything left, right, and center. <laughs> 1999, get over it. Um, so he, he drinks the potion and uh, he does his whole like, oh, <laughs> face kind of thing uh, as the camera like sort of like pushes in and 
it, it his face like darkens there's like shadows and little black things around his eyes and everything and the way that that happens is because the the filmmakers took filters away from the in front of that were in front of the camera lens to reveal more of the makeup so oh. which i think is actually pretty incredible and and they did it in another 30s film another horror film which i've forgot the title but i've seen the clip of it and it's actually really effective as well and you know it's very different from if you've seen the 1940s the wolfman with lon cheney jr i have seen that that's just like dissolves and stuff it's not as i didn't think that was that great it's, it's let's fine. be honest lon cheney jr is not the world's greatest actor he was pretty good in spider baby but uh that that was that was that was many years later but no i i, I think this film is interesting in regards to how um it 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 handles um this kind of uh, this underlining sort of thing that we all have this this thing like we can be good people but there's like a sort of bestiality inside of us that kind of breaks out like this sort of different side of us that we never really see like we can be very good and but something can happen where we, where we become like the beast inside us which is like what the wolfman is a little bit about as well yeah i mean it's super it's it's a i mean it's such a great idea for a story you know this thing of you you have everyone is there a jekyll and hyde you know and it's yeah. interesting that it sort of coincides with a time where people are becoming more aware of freudian ideas and arts and literature exploring you know hidden psychologies more and so on so it's it's, it's interesting yeah so, but you'd say the film is more than just a transformation scene of course it's a you know yeah it's you a creepy film last it's time been... it has some pretty cool like moments in it and uh... it's creepy as well like the when when he turns into mr hyde because there's like i talked about in the pre-code episode there's a g called jekyll saves a prostitute from being beaten up by a lover or a customer or anything like that and she's very sort of seductive and there's the like i talked about the thing with the dang the dangling leg the dangling yeah, leg yeah. and when he becomes mr high he, he prays after her and it becomes like this sort of toxic relationship and it's quite brutal to watch and um i forgot to talk about this in the uh, pre-code episode but uh, Spencer Tracy did a 40s remake of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was not as popular. And this version of the film, the, the 1930s version, was lost for a period of time because of this 1940s film. And it was kind of like a, this is like a Hayes Code movie. Like in that, in this film, the 30s film, the, the girl is a prostitute. But in this one, the Spencer Tracy one, she's just a dancer. So it's just, you know. <laughs> And it's so funny when they start doing that stuff. It's like, oh my god! Like, you just think about how much. I mean, there is there are some really creative ways around the Hayes Code once it starts being um, yeah. enforced, and I love some of the the shortcuts that are found to make stuff suggestible. We just think if Hollywood had just had a little bit more creative freedom, what it could have been capable of in the in the late thirties and forties, but whatever. Um, I can imagine so like glad... I can imagine like Frederick Marsh. I, I, I I do need to watch this one. No, sorry. No, I'm just saying I really need to watch this film. I, I, I'm you you've sold it to me in a big way. Um yeah. But I, I can imagine like Frederick March like calling up Spencer Tracy and being like, hey Spencer, because ah! this Jack his Spencer Tracy's Jekyll and Hyde was not very successful. <laughs> no, I I can't I'm having trouble imagining uh I can imagine Tracy as like Jekyll, but not necessarily as Hyde. Although it's interesting that Spencer Tracy 
did have a kind of Jekyll and Hyde personality, but that's a story for another day. Um, my number six is another Hitchcock film. Uh, it's the only Hitchcock film on my list, but it's a doozy. It's The Lady Vanishes. Um, which... I have The Lady Vanishes, but it's higher on my list. Oh, okay. Well, why don't we come back to it when we get to it then? Sure. Okay. So Park The Lady Vanishes. Uh, what is that? Your number five. My number five is, uh, I had to put a Frank Capra film on here, and um, it's uh, It Happened One Night. Oh, I love that film. Another screwball comedy, of course. Yeah, and it's uh, one of one of the one of the few films that have won the big five with, at the Oscars, which is Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress in a Leading Role. Yeah, it's weird that um, three that's happened to three films, right? Yeah, oh. uh, this one, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and oh, the and the Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, this one is a bit of an odd one out in that those two films are very, very heavy, and this film is so light. This is, film is like a milkshake, um, but it's yeah. but it's wonderful milkshake. It's a, it's a, it's it's terrific. Um, yeah, it's a lot of things. It's it's, it's romance. So, it's so, yeah, the romance is actually genuinely really lovely in this film. Yeah, and it's a good road movie as well. It, like the, the yeah. sort of the journey that they go on. It, I mean, like a lot of these screwball comedy films, and also like what we talked about with with Top Hat is like. They start off like hating each other. They're stuck with each other. That they have to sort of, you know, work together to get where they're going on the journey, and you know, and by the end of the film, they love each other. And there's a little bump there where it's like, oh no, someone says something, and then there's a misunderstanding, and then the, the love is broken. But then they meet each other later, and then they, they fall in love. And then the last final frame of the film, sexual intercourse is hinted at, but it's not shown, but it's hinted at, of course, because it's you know the thirties. And you know it's happily ever after. Exactly, I know you're very well, very well summarized. Um, Clark Abel really sort of became a star in the '30s, and I love that he takes uh, a route that takes him through a number of different genres. You know, I mean, early in the '30s, he's kind of an awkward fit. Uh, there's a great film called Night Nurse with Barbara Stanwyck, who's really a, a vehicle for her, but he's the baddie in that. Uh, he plays this kind of sinister chauffeur guy. Um, you know, by the end of the decade, he's in the biggest movie of all time, which is uh, Gone with the Wind. And, um, you know, he he gets to deliver what is perhaps the iconic Hollywood line. I mean, Gone with the Wind is trash, as we know, but... Um, and it's racist. It is, it was, yes. Um, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it was the prestige picture of its day, just fucked up or whatever um but he got you know it was not an easy road for this weird looking guy to become this heartthrob but you really see in um in it happened one night where his handsomeness and sexiness sort of came from really like he is he he's got a funny bone structure to his face but like the the when it's when it's when he knows how to use it and when he's lit right and when he's you know given directed right i mean he is just so debonair in this he i mean and that's not to take anything away from Claudette Colbert, but fucking hell, Gable is so sexy in this movie. Like he's yeah. just so dashing and like um, just delightful on the eye. Um, you should see. And, you and should she's see, wonderful you should, too. You know. Yeah, she's great. You should you should see Clark Gable in Mutiny on the Bounty. He's very like you know, swashbuckling and like chest and everything. It's, it's yeah. It's, I mean, I feel like that might be taking it a bit you know, into, into the sort of unsubtle realm. But I just think the way he, I mean, he's also a bit of a cad in this film. I mean, he's a, he's an yeah. unscrupulous journalist or whatever. Um, 
and um but yeah he does it he just wears it so well. i feel like uh, george clooney's character in um oh brother where art that is a real throwback to uh gable in this um, yeah I, yeah i agree with that he he does have that kind of quality uh interesting that um you know who the a piece of trivia for you, you know who the actor with the most credits in the afi top 100 is no i don't it's your friend and mine ward bond because oh, yeah, he yeah. is in so many of these films, uh, and he's he's in so many of the films that we've already mentioned. Uh, but he plays the bus conductor in this uh, in this one. Yeah, he's in a lot of those movies. That's true. Yeah, and Gone with the Wind. Uh, anyway, um, just thought I'd bring that up. But no, it mm. happened one night. It's delightful. The the hitchhiking scene. Um, the yeah, the way the that whole, like she the shows business. the leg like that's yeah. because, like <laughs> oh, for Silas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right uh number five yeah it's your number five yeah my number five uh one lesser movie m fritz lang Ooh, yeah i had this on my list but it kind of got pushed down but it is in like my big longer favorite yeah. films for our patreon subscribers you can tune in and hear holmes movies top 250 when we <laughs> 24-hour podcast um, you got four yeah. hours to kill it's a doozy yeah, if you're on a long flight, you should listen to our top 500 movies of 1937. We will uh, we'll go through each one. We will do one hour on each movie. Um, yeah. Um, no. And uh, oh, where do you start? Where do you start with Fritz Lang? Where do you start with... Um, this is one of the most... Uh, I don't know, like... Is it is it one of the most iconic movies of all time in some ways? Like with the with the 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 chalk mark on the back of Peter Lorre's coat, the balloon floating away after he's murdered a child. Um, it's I such think... a fucked up movie in that you know it's about a child murderer. Yeah, but also like, but also I feel like one of the things that the movie does, in it, not like it doesn't change your perspective of Peter Lorre's character, but what it do, like in the scene where he's confessing or whatever oh, at the end brutal. of the film it you know it, it weirdly humanizes this character who is a child killer and i found that very the, interesting the right-wing press if you made this film now would have a fucking field day um you know <laughs> yeah. like just saying but like yeah because it um what was the film originally called it was called something like the monsters are among us or something or the 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 and and the Nazis didn't like that. And then Fritz Lang, I can uh, he, I can look it up while you you talk about the yeah, film. I mean Fritz Lang was um um he was hounded. I mean he left Germany, not hounded up. But his wife, who helped write Metropolis, was her name Margareta von Trotter or something? Can you look up what Fritz Lang's wife was called? Uh, uh, Thea von Harbour. I don't know where I got von Trotter from. Yeah, Thea von Harbour. She stayed and worked for the Nazis, and he left and and made. Yeah, they were know, they were they were married for eleven years from nineteen twenty two to nineteen thirty three. Yeah. So, um, but this film, I feel like, um, is always brought up in terms of like showing the sinister times of early thirties Germany and like how yeah. the and I think even though it's not about fascism per se, it is interesting that it ends with a court made up of criminals. Yeah, it's a kangaroo that take court. over the investigation because the, if you haven't seen the film, dear listener, um, the what happens is that Peter Laurie is a child killer uh, who, you know, pedophile, obviously, who uh, kills children 
and uh, it's just such a you know he's on a, a rampage and this is causing such a stir that the police ramp up their investigation and, the, and they start breaking up all the um, other illegal activities looking for this guy so the gangsters decide to take him down which is just it, the conceit is so cynical and so um, upsetting and um, the fact that it's extra legal of course means that his trial is a complete sham even though he is guilty but then the great trick that then happens as you say is that it humanizes him and throughout the film you've just got this brilliant setup of of, of the the town being terrorized by this guy he whistles what is it he whistles a um, all of the mountain king the mount all of the mountain king yeah and um which is weird and scary to be doing and he he's peter laurie so he's funny looking and intense um you know this was his big break um yeah before and, he uh, went off to america and england and did you know the man who knew too much the original man who, who knew too much yeah. love and then he did films with bogart like the maltese falcon and casablanca and Stranger on the Third Floor, which he's also playing a murderer in that film as well. Yeah, and then he later in life he became a fat parody of himself, himself just like so many people do. Um, yeah, but, he, um, he yeah he got he brandoed himself. Yeah, sorry, but that's what happened. Um, he um, he's just so tremendous in this. There's so many good, um, there's so much good cinematography as well. Great use of montage. Um, and yeah, I just feel like this is like the last hurrah of like German expressionism before the Nazis come in and fuck everything up. So um, yeah, it's um, if you haven't seen it, I would say this is really quite uh, quite mandatory viewing in terms of it being, um, you know, as much as anything else, just kind of a historically important film. But it's so uh, singular uh, and unique as a thriller. Um, you know, I don't think you, you know, you don't get David Fincher's Zodiac and things like that without this movie. Um, and um, yeah, really, um, really tremendously influential. And you're, and you're right. The original title was murderer among us. Yeah. Murder, the, mur the murderers are among us, isn't it? Yeah. Murder unter uns. Hmm. Anyway. But uh... This was his, also, this was his first sound film. Right, right. Yeah. It's his first talkie. Um, and a lot of the film is like so many of those early talkies. There's still much of it that depends on there not yeah. being any dialogue, but the but the bits where there are obviously packed a huge punch. Okay, um, Fritz Lang. We'll talk about him, I'm sure, when we do the 1920s. Um, what's at your number? Well, I've lost track. Are you doing four, five? Where uh, are you I'm doing number four. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, your number six was uh, Lady Vanishes, wasn't it? All right. Yeah. So what's your number four? So my number four is also another uh, sort of creepy little spooky movie. Uh, this time it's in um, our native land of Denmark, and it's uh, Carl Theodor Dreyer's film, Vampire. Oh, that's great. Yes, that's what well, I mean. It was made in uh, Germany. But yeah, no, it's a fantastic film. Really good film. Why is that not in my top ten? Well, because it's difficult to do these things. Um, it's oh, very difficult. As soon as you say, like, oh, I really like this film, and then you have to, like, punch, like, so many stuff that's relegated. Yeah, okay, so Vampire, we talked about it on the horror episode, uh, the pre-code yeah. horror episode, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I keep, I, I remember someone, uh, I think it was on the Dana Gould Hour, I heard it referred to as, like, a 1930s movie directed by David Lynch, like, it was like, what would happen if it David Lynch could have that quality. Yeah. It has that Lynchian quality, because you don't really know what the hell is going on. There's a lot of, like, spooky weirdness that's happening and you're you know and also like like m like you discussed is that 
there's not a lot of dialogue in the film. Like it does feel like this is one of the last sort of like talkies that still lives in the world of silent cinema and uses music and creepy camera shots and angles and also shadows, like really interesting use of shadows and special effects. Yeah. I don't know how they did that, but I was very amazed by it and I thought it was really effective. Love especially that bit with the with the the ghost of the old soldier. Yeah, I thought that was incredible and also incredibly frightening as well. A very immersive film. You really felt like you were in that main character's shoes and it's oh, it's, it's like it's 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 dreamlike in that way, like that bit it where it feels he's like in a nightmare. Room. Yeah, exactly. It, it's totally translated the sensation of having a nightmare and put it on a put it on a screen. Yeah, it feels like it. It kind of taps into that weird, you know, that thing. If you you know you go to an unknown small town to you like imagine like you're in a in a real life scenario. You go to a small town. You're away from the big cities. You're away from like internet good phone signal and anything like that so your mind kind of what rages on a little bit if you are this kind of like paranoid about other sort of people and things like that so it does tap into that a little bit of you know that fear of small town or like you know countryside folk kind of thing yeah very much kind of rural horror yeah it's it yeah yeah it totally has that it, and um uh, but it has the sort of real genuine kind of gothic like the best kind of vampire film shows like this is an ancient monster and you have to go and look for him in like books and stuff and uh figure out how to defeat it but it's such a quiet movie this that's not there aren't many like ah! kind of moments yeah, yeah. it's, it's just, not like uh, jump scares or anything like that it, it right. relies a lot on atmosphere and the bit where he's like imagining himself being buried and then the creepy face like looking above him <laughs> like this, oh, yeah that's so ooh. it's yeah. just like ooh, not like that. definitely the creepiest film of, of well one of the creepiest films of the 30s i would say um yeah that's a great shout i love that movie um yeah yeah well my number four is another jean gabin film uh this time it's uh pepe lamoco which um sounds like a ridiculous title for a film um and was uh, inspiration actually for Pepe Le Pew. Um, Who but this is was a- cancelled <laughs> these days. Right. This is a movie directed by Julien Duvier. It is a uh, gangster film, kind of, also a bit of a romance. Um, it's uh, set in, um, is it Tangier? I'm in not Cas- sure. I haven't, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know. In Algiers. Yeah, the Algiers. Yeah, he's in Algiers, in Algeria. Uh, he's a French gangster living in Algiers. He um, he has his whole network. He lives in the Casbah, this like warren of little streets and stuff. And um, he hides out from the cops there. But he then meets and falls in love with a French tourist. And, um, you know, he has to come out of the Casbah in order to have his reunions with her. And that puts him in danger. Um, Gabin plays the titular Pepe, of course. Um, it is such an atmospheric film they do use the genuine location shots but most of it i think is done with sets and the sets are very fucking cool uh the way they're able to use all the alleyways and stuff with the lighting i mean it is so like proto noiry in terms of the, the the in terms of that but also um the 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 delightful kind of um anti-hero that he is that he is genuinely like a bad guy um and um <laughs> he like a lot of the sort of american gangsters um of the movies of this era you know he he is uh 
he's unfit for society, but we hu- yeah. we humanize him in this film. And Gabin gives us like another one of these kind of world weary performances uh, that he was so good at. Um, and he, um, you know, he invests a lot in the in the love plot, uh, but and and you know he's and it's done really convincingly. Um, but there's also this sense that, like, of course, he has to destroy himself because it's not enough just to be a successful criminal living on the run. Because it's not that's not a life, and so it's better to die mm-hmm. in some ways than to continue to live that way. So there's some like social message in there, but it's also just a kind of poetic uh, statement, I think. Um, so it's just interesting to note, that, you know, this is Algeria in the 1930s. It's basically part of France to all intents and purposes. This is a colony, you know, that won its liberation after a bloody war in the 60s um but you know the french were there as colonizers and that relationship kind of exists in the film to some extent of course there's some problematic like brown face at various bits but um you're just really interesting as like a um uh, like a historical look at france's identity as a you know a colonial power um but yeah, just the the design and the the execution of the the all the little streets. So I mean, that's really what stays with you from this movie, uh, and as, as well as um, just Gabin being cool as usual. Um, Have you ever what, seen the uh, Battle of Algiers? Yeah, yeah, it's a brilliant film. Yeah, that's a really good movie. I'm just yeah. starting to think about it. Uh, what's your number three? So uh, my number three is a film from 1939 directed by George Cukor. And it's a film that we have talked about on the podcast. This is like one of our pre-COVID pandemic episodes. And it's The Women. Did we do a whole episode on The Women? We did do a whole episode on The Women. Bloody hell. God, we really used to do deep dives, didn't we? Yeah, it was good fun. You can listen to that episode, a full episode of it, if, if you like. It's, it's available. Hmm. Well, good uh, film, women. It is a good film, and I mean, just great cast: Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell. Is it the third best film of the nineteen thirties? Though, I mean, not to be too critical or anything. I mean, you like it. I, I, I'm, I not, just, I'm not picking holes in your list. It's a good movie. It's a really good movie. Subjectivity. <laughs> yes, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I, I just, I, 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 I just think it's a really charming film. Yes, I admit, it's a film completely. It's a film that has an entire female cast, including the animals. The animals are also women as well. There's but no it doesn't pa- pass the Bechdel test. It does not pass the Bechdel test. They, they only talk about men. Yeah, because they only talk about men. Uh, but why no, just, why, so everything I say, you repeat. That's how it goes from now on. Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're smiling at me in a very annoying way. There. Yeah. But look, um, the women, um, it's, it's really funny. I mean, it is a really good comedy. There are some great bits and the performances are, uh, I would say, especially by Rosalind Russell's performance. Um, but you've got your Joan Crawford and Norma Shearer as well. Um, Joan Fontaine is boring as fuck, though, isn't she? Who was she again? Yeah, she was Peggy Day. Yeah, the boring one. <laughs> She's the boring one. But Norma Shear is really good in the movie as well. Like the yeah, whole, she is. Just the whole, you know, where she's like, oh my God, my husband loves me. It's like... Periwinkle Blue. No, what? No, it's not Periwinkle Blue. It's like Ruby. Periwinkle Blue. <laughs> Periwinkle Blue. <laughs> Which is a reference to Psycho. It's like, I helped pick out her dress. Periwinkle Blue. So the pe- so hang on a minute. Periwinkle Blue in Snatch is a reference to Psycho. Yeah, because that's the, the dress that Norman Bates' mother was buried in. Fuck. Okay. Um, anyway, back to the women. Yeah. Um, 
weird film, weird experiment, um, but yeah. successful. I mean, it's 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 really watchable. It's really funny. Um, you don't. I think maybe to a modern audience, you you actually need to be reminded that there are only women in the film because I feel like back then it's like, well, where are where are all the men? You know, whereas like now it's like, yeah, it's well, they did do an old. They did they did remake it. I think they actually did call it the women as well. Oh, was that the one with like um, Ava Mendes? Fergie in that film? Uh, I think so, or it was Ava Mendes. I'm not too sure. I can look it up. Oh, well, someone it, anyway. It looked crap. Um, but yeah, yeah, it did um, get it. Came it came out in 2008. Yeah, it had Meg Ryan, Annette Bening, Eva Mendes, Deborah Messing, Jada Pinkett Smith, Bette Midler, Candace Bergman, Carrie Fisher, Cloris Meacham, uh, Cloris Leacham. Sorry, that's a great cast. But um, so is this, and we should stay in the 30s. Um, yeah, sorry. George Cukor directed it. Should have obviously been a female director, but they didn't do that sort of thing in Hollywood back then. Um, well, Dorothy Anzer, she directed films. Major production like this. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just like, it's it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, it's like, here we are, oh, we're making this big film. It's all about the women. God bless them, kind of thing. And, and the tagline for the film was actually, it's all about men. It's on the post. You look at the posters. It says the women, you know, and then it's like it's all about men. It's like it's always like, don't worry, they're not just talking about like oh, shopping or whatever the fuck women talk about, you know. Um, fuck women talk about. It's it's um um. Speaking of shopping, though, there's that one bit in color. There's the fashion show sequence. Yeah, the only bit in color. Wouldn't you love it if shopping was still like that? That would have been like lame, going yeah. clothes shopping was still that exciting that you spend yeah. like hours doing it, and as part of it, you get like an actual fashion show with a real model. Yeah, it becomes like an event. It actually, you know, yeah. you would be like going to a concert. Yes, yeah, I like go to like a festival. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I feel like life should move at that pace. Anyway, um, it's it's really dumb, but really charming, as you say. Uh, I feel yeah. like charming is the word that comes up a lot in the nineteen thirties. It's like, well, it's why, like is it, it's, it's, why is it top three, why is it in the top three of you? I mean, defend yourself. For me, I, I, I it's a crowd pleaser, and I feel like the thirties were f were filled with a lot of films that were crowd pleasers, and I really and I enjoyed this movie a lot. It's funny, it's cute, it has a lot of like, of course, yeah, it is about women, but they're talking about men, but it's got women in it. But I I I, I found it to be a very pleasant and really good film. It's written really well. I think there's a lot of great lines. There's a lot of great characterization. Like all the characters are very singular, except for Joan Fontaine, who's forgettable. Um, I think Joan Crawford is a great character. Like she's great in the film, and she's also really good in another 1930s film, which I watched, which I watched recently, The Grand Hotel, which is uh, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's a really really wonderful film. Um, great set design in that film and also there's, there's some good set design here good physical comedy in this one too i mean there are bits of the women that are actually like screwball comedy despite they're not being the usual screwball dynamic of a warring couple but yeah no it's um i think rosalind russell injects so much of that into this um there's so much like energy um and um no i'm i'm not i'm i'm not saying you shouldn't have picked this because i think it's a i think it's a really representative film of what was what was good about hollywood at this time which was like if you wanted just like great escapism this is where you know this is your this is the decade for it and also i think like this shows the excellence of the studio system where you could like pack a single production organization with so much expertise 
all these great actors, all these great technicians, and just produce these like lovingly done um, uh, pictures. You know that, that, that were obviously intended to just be entertainment to make money and disappear. But you know the the amount of thought and skill and care that's gone into this, and the amount of um, just you know chutzpah of, of having such a, a stacked cast. You know that. that it, it's delightful to see it um so yeah, yeah i think a worthy pick uh yeah. even if uh i might maybe a, a wee bit generous um but yeah no. and also i think one thing i will say is that i i did read a quote about george kakora he was actually referred to and i believe by Catherine hepburn as an actor's director yeah and i think you see that in this film yeah yeah okay, and some so of the other films he's directed too my number three is um a really singular film in part because the director died so young um so he didn't get to make that many um but it's uh la talente uh, which was directed by jean vigo which is um you know a film which i feel like um it's, it, it doesn't you, i don't know of any other films like this one it's the best film about a newly married couple who live on a barge with a weird guy with lots of tattoos and cats. I mean, that's the, that's the movie. <laughs> it's like the cat lady from The Simpsons. <laughs> no, he's, he's, Michel Simon's character in this is is similar in some ways. Um, he's called like, what's he called? Père Jules or something. Uh, he's terrific. It's such a sweet, sweet film. Um, yeah, Père Jules. Um you know, this this couple get married. The guy runs a barge. I guess it does bargey things on the Seine. She's a girl from a country village, I guess. And the life on the barge is a bit hard. And the guy's a bit rough around the edges. And, you know, they have a crisis. And it has that, but it has that scene where he has been told that if you hold yourself underwater for long enough, you'll see what you want, most want in the world. And when he goes under the water... He loses her at one point. He goes under the water and then he sees her and he realizes that he must find her more than anything else because he sees her under in you know in his mind's eyes. He's you know essentially drowning himself. And it is such a sort of breathtakingly romantic sequence, that one, and such a like just gorgeously sort of poignant and evocative um idea. And 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 the whole film is suffused with this kind of sweet tender poignancy uh and it but it, it, it ends up being a happy film of course but it's just so sort of calm and lovely and delicate um it's i love the way that vigo just uses the barge as like a camera platform as well it's so clever to have that your set is just the, the world going by you know on either side um the 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 performances are all terrific uh michelle simon especially you know he's this like disruptive figure on the boat you know he's this chaotic sailor who like he's really loud he has he's like a sort of um he, you know sort of like i guess he could be played by tom waits or something in a later film he's got all these like hats and all this bric-a-brac in his uh all this nautical bric-a-brac in his cabin and but he's just such a like he's like the glue that holds the film together you know and it's just such a um such a great idea and uh and i mean it's just not that much to say about it other than like just technically it's masterfully done. It's beautifully written. It's such an original um, concept, and it's just so sad that Vigo died when he was in his thirties and didn't make more movies. Because he, I'm sure, he would have done um, other really, really good ones. I mean, the the one he did before this was a sort of short, t- shortish film called Zero de Conduit about a boarding school, uh, which again is 
um, uh, just like unlike any other film uh, you've ever seen. But yeah, uh, Last of is one of my absolute favorite movies. Uh, just such a treat. Watch it, watch it, watch it. What did he? What did he die of? I don't know. Uh, no, see. not not meaning to be all morbid. I'm just I'm just curious, like what what what, what made him pass away? He was tuberculosis, and he was 29. Oh God! Fucking tragic, man. But yeah. Anyway, poor guy. But he he was clearly just a genius. Um, and um, I, I yeah, I I don't know. I want everyone to watch every film on these lists, but um, La Salonde is special um huh. right well he's got a there's a, a an award an annual award name after him which they give it, it's they it's an award that is given to astounding french film directors Whoa, i did not know that that's really nice the, okay. uh, right, what's your the, number two buddy the prix jean vigo so my number two is uh your number six and it's the lady vanishes that is that's high placement, but I love it um, because it's such a good film. Interesting that neither of us picked the Thirty Nine Steps. I haven't seen the Thirty Nine Steps. Okay, that's that's a good reason. Um, <laughs> I've been meaning but, to watch it. It is it is. I I I recently watched I rewatched uh, Vertigo in Rear Window, and it made me want to watch more Hitchcock that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, Thirty Nine Steps is great, but this is. But I do think this is better. Uh, interestingly, this and Thirty Nine Steps have that screwball comedy thing that you mentioned of a man and a woman who start off as antagonists being sort of stuck together and falling yeah. for each other throughout the the film. Yeah, and I, I and I think like I I remember just it, it's I I love films like this like thrillers set on a train because it, yes, it, it train. Mm-hmm. This is when we talked about, I knew I, I remember yeah. talking about this on the podcast when we did our train films episode. Yeah. Cause I feel like trains are the best place to shoot or f- like have thrillers or these types of stories like happening. Cause it's like, even though it's like, you know, you're moving and you're going through different areas, but like, it still feels very claustrophobic and you're always kind of like, there's this heightened bit of paranoia. Cause you're always like keeping an eye on passengers and, you know, there's changing passengers and everything like that, and you're going through different areas, and you're always kind of worried about like, are you going to make your next destination and anything like that? And I and I think it's it it works very well. And this this idea of like this this heightened thing of paranoia, and it's like, did I see this old woman like sitting next to me on the train, and like, and then she's gone, and then it's just, and I love how the film kind of like takes off from there, and then all the sort of surprises and twists that kind of come with it. And oh, also so, the- so delightful. I mean, it's so creative. It's like the mystery. It's also that thing of like they set it in like unnamed Central Europe, some you know, between the wars. It's so yeah. it's full of all this like um espionage stuff. You know, kind of Eric Ambler style intrigue. Uh, uh there are all these different characters. I mean, that's the other thing about train movies, they allow you to populate your ensemble with all these like international types and um which they yeah, do with just, Murder on the Orange Express very well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's just, it, it's so um, so fun. I mean, um, and um, yeah, genuinely a very suspenseful and, and well-made film. Um, yeah, but I like how it goes, it sort of blends a little different genre, it, it, sorry, it blends a few different genres. It starts off, it's like, it's a comedy, it's also like an espionage spy film, a paranoid thriller, and then at the end of the film, it turns into like a Western shootout in like the woods on the train and everything. And then it's just right. It's it's so much fun. 
And, and also, then you get those. I love the two characters, Charters and Caldecott, who are these two guys who are just trying to get back to um to see their uh, England game. in time to watch a cricket game. And um, they I love, reappear. I love, that, I love that scene where like the newspaper is up and then it goes down. And they're both like in the same bed with each other. Oh yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, because there is that. The, the, that's interesting. There's a, they do a reappear in other movies. The same characters. Night train, they, they, night train to Munich, or Night Train to Munich, or whatever it's called. Yeah, which is a really fun film. Um, they they are in that. Um, yeah, but the, 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 again, it's that thing of you know, when you're on a train, as like you can you can make this ensemble cast. It's like a boat movie. You you, you get to know yeah. everyone, and your world is very enclosed. And uh, yeah, Hitchcock just like. It, it, it becomes like, dare I say the pun, you know, it's like a train set, you know, he just gets to have so much fun, like playing with this, uh, this mm. scenario. Yeah. And Margaret, I Margaret love, Lockwood is love, great. Love this film. And shout out to my friend, Ed, who showed it to me for the first time when we were like 11. Um, because I, um, uh, I, yeah, I've loved this film for you know, most of my life. Uh, it's just, it's just such a delight. And you can go back to it. Again. That's the great thing about Hitchcock. You can go back again and again and again, and they're still suspenseful and they're still entertaining. Yeah, that is kind of the beauty of it. I mean, like Vertigo, I can watch again and again and again. And Rear Window, which I love, I could just watch that again and again and again. Yeah, I think Vertigo is not like a film you sit down and like, oh, I can watch this any day. Like, I feel like you have to be a little bit in the mood for Vertigo. You it's do, so yeah. Heavy. It is It is a very, like, <laughs> film. Because this, the thing about, I think, I think a lot of people would be kidding you if they said they really were familiar with Hitchcock's work in the 30s. I think a lot of people, <laughs> this is, doesn't apply to you, but a lot of people have seen the 39 Steps and nothing else. Um, but there is so much richness in his other thirties output, and I, for me, the Lady Vanishes is still the best one. Um, it's the funniest, it's the most creative, um, and um, it's um, I think the most suspenseful, the most kind of infuriating. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, and it's such a satisfying, such a satisfying. It has, it's a satisfying film, and it has a very satisfying conclusion as well, where you're like cheering yes. at the end of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They did right. do like they did do like a slight remake of this film with Jodie Foster in two thousand and five, but they set it on a plane. Oh, oh yeah. It's where like she's flying from Berlin to America, and she falls asleep on the plane with her daughter, and then her daughter vanishes, but no one's seen her. And mm. um, it's got Peter Sarsgaard is in it, and the captain of the plane is Sean Bean. Uh oh. It's good fun. It's good fun, but uh, but no, but it's, it's 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 good like mid two thousands film to watch. Like it's like an airplane novel, like like slip on, and it's like it's 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 fine. But this is way better. Not going to watch it on the plane, that's for sure. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my number two is uh, John Ford's Stagecoach. Um, Ooh, good film. That wonderful western that helped re that rescued this genre from like B movie obscurity and rescued the movie star from being movie obscurity john wayne uh this was the creation of john wayne as a movie star uh, but there's so much more than that again it's an ensemble it's like the lady vanishes you put everyone on a stagecoach and you have an a, the opportunity to put them in a claustrophobic space and reveal all these personality clashes and warring tempers and um and of course you set it in a inhospitable landscape with hostile native people um and then you finish it off with a brilliant gunfight i mean what's not to like uh, it is um, uh, Thomas Mitchell's greatest performance, the one for which he won an Oscar, playing Doc Boone. Um, you've you've also got Andy Devine as the stagecoach driver. Claire Trevor is so so good in this, and um, one of the characters. Uh, 
Yes, yes, of course. Can't, can't forget the Caradine. Um, but I mean, like, it's like this is like it invents the classic Western. It's like, okay, we're gonna now, this is gonna be the text that says this is what a Western is. This is what a classical Western is. Uh, we've been figuring this out because the Western started as like a novel, you know, a novelistic thing, and then it became this kind of quick B-movie thing. But, you know, there'd been a brief flirtation with sort of Western epics like Cimarron and the Big Trail. But really, Westerns were kind of defined as a movie genre, as an hour and a half long pictures involving um, peril, landscape, people, and gunfights. And yeah. um, White hats against the black hats. Yes, but also more complex than that. And play, you know, the best films complicate that picture. But you know, yes, it, 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 in in so many words, you know, it. But it, you know, it sets out certain kind of expectations for the genre. This this film and and um, and it does it magnificently. And, and this was also, you know, Stagecoach was so influential. I mean, you look at the fact that Wells watched it when he was making Citizen Kane over and over again. There are scenes in stagecoach that are in deep focus the cinematography is uh, in many of the interior scenes you know you look at that and you can see how that gets applied to citizen kane but then you also see how for the first time uh, the 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 cast went out to um what am i talking about monument valley to yeah. where you know where we went and uh, obviously and and onto location to film these buttes and landscape uh you know these canyons um and and just again, you know, to take the Western out of the studio to put it in the mountains, you know, was a real move. And um, yeah, I mean, we get John Ford comes back to the genre that he loves the most, and he sort of never really looks back. And he does he does three films in thirty nine, and and one of uh, two two of them are westerns. This and Drums Along the Mohawk. And um, well, the other one was The Informer, wasn't it? No, thirty. That was earlier. Uh, oh, okay. The other one in the thirty nine, I think, was Young Mister Lincoln. Anyway. Um, well, the grapes it, of wrath wasn't it? The grapes of wrath. Oh fuck! I can't remember. Ah, oh, bloody hell! Anyway, um, doesn't matter. There are uh, yeah. other good westerns that come out in 1939. There's Jesse James, uh, of course. Um, but like all taken together, I feel like Stagecoach is the one that just emerges from the 30s as like the western of this decade, and I think it's also one of the best films of the decade. Uh, mm. I think it plays on contemporary concerns of the Great Depression. And I think a little bit on American foreign policy, even, you know, this idea of, um, you know, a world in flux, but also um, it pokes fun at sort of American self-righteousness, morality. It looks at the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, Prejudice. You know, the, main, the most obscene, the, the, most, um, the, the most reprehensible character in the film is a banker. You know, so there's oh, that. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. the depression angle. So yeah, no, there's 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 plenty going on. It's not just a. It's definitely far from a B movie, and just so skillfully done. Uh, so yeah. yeah, stagecoach. Right, time for our number ones. What's your number one, sir? Pretty sure your number one is probably going to be the same one as mine. It is um, a French film. It's yep. with Jean Gabin. Yep. It's from 1937. It's directed by Jean Renoir. I had it. I was either crossed between putting another John Renoir film at number one, but I decided to put this one here because it made a really good impression on me when I saw this at film school. I mainly watched it because I had to talk about French poetic realism as part of this course that we did. But um, 
yeah, it's the film is Le Grand Illusion. Nah, same. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. That's really interesting that neither of us picked Rules of the Game, which we could have done, which is a great film. Yeah. And we both went for this film. But why is that? It's just like, it's a very... Rules of the Game is generally higher regard. Like, we're, we're unusual in that regard. Most people yeah. would pick Rules of the Game. Yeah, I mean, Rules of the Game is a really, really nice... I mean, I haven't... I mean, I really like Rules of the Game, but I haven't seen it for, like, a really long time to really sort of say, like, yes, that's going to be in my top ten. I Because I feel like this film is so in my memory... I've seen this movie a couple of times, and just it it's really stuck with me. And I feel like it's a film of, like... It's so poignant like it's it and also it's like a really great example of not just of like french cinema but of world cinema yeah and it made me it makes me want to watch more of jean, uh, jean renoir's films and also more films of french poetic realism and it's a really interesting brilliant film and it's a very um it, it, it it's a very overt examination uh examination of class culture yeah. the sort of death of the aristocracy and the sort of futility of war you know it's it's a very warm and light film but at the same time it's very cold and heavy like it's very like tragic as well totally i agree with everything you said i mean i think i don't want to i do not want to make this into a why is this film better than the rules of the game I mean, there's no real point in having that they're both two of the greatest films ever made um for my purposes, I could have put both in my top 10, but I feel like I really wanted to rep be more representative and have Jean Vigo and Carnet and Duvivier in there as well. I could have done top 10 just of French films of the 1930s probably, but like, um, you know, Grand Illusion has, it has a lot of the stuff that's in Rules of the Game, just as much of the sort of satire and a sense of um, critiquing French society um, and sort of elitist European notions of class or what have you. Um, but I think it adds something. It takes this trauma of the First World War and tries to reckon with that. You know, it it, it puts us in situations where we're um, in, um, you know, imprisoned, uh, incarcerated. You know, there's, it's very eerie that this is a film that, you know, really comes out just a couple of years before the Second World War, and it's so much about the experience of being captured, you know, being held inside. Um, you know, and then later on, of course, it looks at, um, it's an escape narrative. And then in that wonderful final act, you know, this this coming together of the, the Fre French escape prisoners and this German woman who takes them in, um, played by Dita Paolo, who was in La Salon, by the way. Um, her face is just the way that woman can hold, could hold her face to express sorrow and longing. I mean, I no one has ever been able to. It's just the way Jean Gabin's character. Sorry to interrupt. It's just like I really remember that scene so well. Like just the way he's talking to her and she's just like looking ahead and she's just got tears in her eyes. It's so oh, God. Oh, ah, it's so poignant. Um, the uh, what were you about to say? Sorry, I jumped. Really I jumped over you there for a second. Sorry, what were you about yeah, to say? Marcel Dalio is also really good in the film. Um, Eric von fucking Stroheim is in this movie. Let's not forget that. This um, <laughs> mental. Um, just, yeah, as you say, it's got everything. It's got literally everything, this film. It's it's so male for most of you. You're like, oh, this film really needs some female energy. Bang, Dieter Parler. It's like, it's, it's got like the whole, you know, the whole uh, catalogue of what you could put on the screen. Um, and um, it's a war movie. It's a buddy movie. It's a comedy. It's a tragedy. It's 
it's so layered and it's so rich and I fucking love it. I really, really do. I think this is one of my favorite films ever. Um, I, I would say that of my top three, actually. Latinal, Stagecoach and Grand Illusion, they are very much sort of desert island movies for me. Um, and um, and what a sadness, you know, what, I mean, that I think that's the crowning sadness of the 30s when you look at them. It's like all these films were made and then the world ripped itself apart, you know. It's like you had this and, the, and it was never the same again. And it's like the world's already ripped itself apart once in this time. The people making these films are looking back to the First World War and there's another even more awful war on the way. It's um, like the, ear, the eeriness of knowing what's going to happen a few years down yeah. the line. It just, it adds like a, it, there's a, it adds a bit of thematic weightiness to the last scene of the film. Definitely, definitely. Um, and to the whole film, I think. Yeah. Um, it also, by the way, features a scene where Germans are singing uh, the Wacht am Rhein and then another group of people sing La Marseillaise over the top. So in case you that's think Casablanca invented that, that's, uh, not, you know, that's where it comes from. Yeah. But I, I also like that scene where Jean Gabin's character is in the um, the cooler and he's, you know... Oh, so yeah. He has he, kind of... He's so, his performance in that is like fucking method. Like, it's like, yeah, he's, he's just like... He's Lee Strasberg being the whole fucking thing all of a sudden. He's he's doing what Robert De Niro does in that scene in Raging Bull when Jake LaMotta gets arrested and he like fights himself in prison. He's just doing essentially like that, but he's acting alongside a guy playing a German prisoner. And I do like there's one scene in the film which did make me laugh the second time I watched it because they have like they they do this like big they have like built a tunnel. And they're about to escape, but then they get transferred to like they, some of the prisoners get transferred to like other other POW camps. And then there's these British guys who like soldiers who get brought into the camp. And then Jean Gabin tries to like say, by the way, there's a tunnel in your camp. And the British guy's like, get off me kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's the sort of culture. There's a lot of like British bashing in this film, which is great. There's also the scene where the, all the Brits are, the, are seen cross-dressing, um, which is, you know, fun because of um, how often um, French depictions of French people in British humor is sort of, you know, as, as being fey and emasculated. But anyway, um, it's so, there is such, like, it's such a, there are a lot of, like, lulls in this film. There's a lot of, like, good banter, but ultimately, like, it is a heavy film. It is a, a film about um, loss and, and war and sadness and so on and, and, um, and grief. You know, it's a film that is processing a lot of grief. And don't forget, you know, Renoir, Jean Renoir served in the, the First World War. He was wounded. You know, he, the the guy was a you know, he's a fucking veteran. Uh, he was <laughs> he was in the you know he 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 was he literally didn't want to he, he he didn't like you know he saw his buddies die face down in the muck. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Well, yeah, and, uh, speaking of his buddies, you know when they were um, he was making a different film earlier in the decade, and he was getting annoyed because there was some sound of these airplane engines coming from a nearby airfield. So he drove to the airfield to try and get them to shut up, and he realized that one of the pilots was one of the guys that he'd served with in the air force in uh, the First World War, and that inspired him to write this movie. Oh, just running into that, running into that friend. Yeah. So that you know. Um, and there's this, there's there's really lovely um, interviews with him where you can sort of see him explaining a little bit more about what uh, brought him to make this. You can tell it was this one he did from the heart, you know. Yeah, um, there's a lot of passion anyway, in this film. I need to go and figure out what's going on with my family here. So let's round out our top ten and say goodbye, huh? Yeah, let's do that. So my top ten is at number ten, Forty Second Street. Number nine, Sabotage. 
Number eight, The Bride of Frankenstein. Number seven, City Lights. Number six, Dr. Jekyll, Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Number five, It Happened One Night. Number four, Vampira. Number three, The Women. Number two, The Lady Vanishes. And number one, La Grande Illusion. Mine, uh, number 10, Bringing Up Baby. Number nine, Top Hat. Number eight, Only Angels Have Wings. Number seven, K-Day Broom, a.k.a. Port of Shadows. Number six, The Lady Vanishes. Number five, M. Number four, Pepe Lamoco. Number three, La Talente. Number two, Stagecoach. And number one, Grand Illusion. You can find us on Instagram, don't forget, at Holmes Movies Pod. Um, yep. Follow us there and tell other people to follow us because our content is actually really great. Um, and um, you should also rate and review the podcast because apparently that does actually help. Um, and yep. you should get in touch because we'd love to hear from you. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for other things that we might want to do um with this yeah. uh with this show so um yeah we do want to hear from our uh listeners and um uh but we also want you to go and tell other people about us because this we're doing important work here introducing you to films that you haven't seen and might want to see and might want to tell other people to see um and um with a good kind yeah, of influences yeah exactly exactly so uh you know get out there and uh tell people to join the homes movies revolution because it's uh you know the train is leaving this what am i talking about the train is leaving the station i just get on board folks fucking subscribe just subscribe listen. to the podcast yeah just <laughs> check us out fucking, that kind of thing. like jesus yeah. christ don't make me sit here and beg you know just listen to the like us. podcast. Like, like us. <laughs> you have to like us. Please like us. Um, okay. Um, I have to go. Goodbye. Kind of like Victor McClagler at the end of The Informer. <laughs> like, like us. <laughs> like this podcast. <laughs> Your mother forgives me. Precious. <laughs> Your mother forgives me. Uh, that might not. There's a lot of big films that aren't in the top. That, that should, maybe that should have been in there. That's a good film. Why don't yeah. you not? You could have put that in instead of the women. <laughs> we'll do Just like saying. a remake. We'll remake of this. <laughs> Go through. You know what? If we started over again and just did the top ten of each day, they would be different every time. And then we'd be like, "Oh damn, we should just like redo it or whatever." Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so the next, uh, I guess, like the last top ten episode is going to be on the nineteen uh, twenties. Um, yeah. So stay tuned to. I mean, stay tuned for that, but then also stay tuned for whatever we decide other, to other content, other other stuff. But uh, yeah, right. uh, anyway, uh, I got to go because it's night, and I got to go to bed, and you got to do stuff. Yeah, that's about the size of it. Good night. Yeah. Sleep well. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye.